Welcome, everyone. I'm not used to this TED Talk kind of uh, microphone. I've never worked with it before, but so hopefully, um, I actually have a voice could, that could carry across this room without it. So let me know if I get too loud or too squeaky or anything like that. Welcome very, very much to all of you. We were afraid with a five o'clock session that, you know, people would rather go out and have a good dinner in Washington, D.C. Um, one of President Kennedy's aides once gave the best description of D.C. I ever heard, which was uh, D.C., the town with northern charm and, and uh, oh my goodness, southern uh, hospitality. No. Oh boy, I blew that. <laughs> I'll have to look up that quote again. Um, I do have one managed care joke since we're going to be dealing with some very specific and sometimes challenging uh, ideas around managed care, um, I thought I'd give you my favorite joke. So there was this CEO of a managed care plan, and he was really uh, trying to shave the services and get as much uh, profit for his company as he possibly could. And one day, though, he was at his desk, and he dropped dead with a massive heart attack. And he woke up at the gates of heaven. And, you know, St. Peter said, welcome, it's, you're here, nice to see you. He said, but I'm kind of confused. You know, I really did kind of squeeze those services so that the company could make more profit. And so St. Peter said, well, let me look. And he looked, he said, yes, you're authorized for three days. <laughs> so maybe what comes around goes around. Um, I'm Rita Vandevoort. I work at HRSA in the uh, Office of Planning, uh, Evaluation, Planning, Assessment, and Evaluation. My uh, colleague and partner in crime from the same office, Carrie Cornejo, is going to tell you about uh, some of the new quality measures. But I'm going to start first around some of the Medicaid managed care uh, changes, and also which came out this spring, and also the changes that came out around uh, mental health and substance abuse parity requirements under Medicaid. So um, they say they want this interactive, so if you've got a question, please raise your hand, and uh, we'll try to address it. We have no financial interest to disclose. I'm a poor Fed, you know. Um, our learning objectives are here to understand managed care and quality changes coming under Medicaid, CHIP, and Medicare. Uh, gain insights into how these changes may affect the HIV uh, providers and uh, uh, stakeholders and prepare for the implementation of these federal and state policies. I do think uh, Medicaid is always a program that is part Fed and part state. And although I think overall in the managed care new rules, they've raised the bar, there is still a lot of flexibility that the states have. So those of you in your state need to 
um, be attentive to what your state Medicaid office is doing. And we'll look at some of the, the new requirements and their choices. There's for CME. Okay, so I'm going to talk first around the managed care rules. They were updated for the first time since 2002. So uh, the Medicaid rules were kind of uh, old school and needed updating. Um, I'll touch on the Mental Health Parity Act, which though it was passed in 2008, Medicaid didn't come out with regs for it until this very year in March. And then Carrie's going to talk about um, the changes for quality requirements for providers. You may recall that there used to be a congressional mandate that uh, uh, physicians couldn't make more than a certain increase. And every year, Congress would delay it and delay it and delay it until it got to be ridiculous. And so they finally said, we're going to scrap it, and we're going to replace it with something, though, that emphasizes value and uh, quality. And so Carrie's going to talk about the quality that will be rolled out uh, to many providers next year, although the mandate full-scale thing won't happen until the following. Okay, changes to Medicaid regulations. I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. So these are the five um, kind of principles that CMS uh, used when they wanted to revise uh, the managed care regulations uh, under Medicaid. One, they wanted to uh, really catch up with some of the quality standards that most plans in the community have. They felt like they needed to protect the beneficiary. If you remember, managed care really started to roll out in Medicaid in the 1990s, but it was primarily for, I feel like I have a hair piece here that I have to adjust, sorry, um, that it was rolled out first to women and children under Medicaid, and only later uh, has been rolled out to those with disabilities. And so CMS felt like they needed to build in more protections to manage care. Uh, they also wanted to develop more accountability. We'll look at that. And better align with some of the standards that were in every other kind of employer plan and Medicare. So align with other payers. And of course, the the buzzword of the day, we wanted to support delivery system reform. And so we'll look at some of the changes related to that. So um, one of the most important changes, especially for providers, is that now Medicaid uh, programs have to have develop real standards around network adequacy related to time and to distance. So in other words, um, an enrollee can't be more than 30 minutes away from um, 
the uh, primary care person or those kind of standards. Some states already have those, but many states uh, had them in some areas and not in others. They now must have them in adult and pediatric primary care, adult and pediatric uh, specialist care, adult and pediatric behavioral health care. And when I use that term behavioral health, I'm meaning both mental health and substance abuse. And then they also had to develop standards, uh, time and distance standards about hospitals, pharmacies, um, OBGYNs, and long-term services and supports. So that is a lot more, uh, the, the state, the, actually the plan has to do the assessment, the state sets the standards. So CMS didn't say it has to be 30 minutes to access uh, primary care, but they said, state, you have to do an analysis and you have to set the standards. It can vary by geography. So in rural areas, it may take an hour to get to your provider, whereas you say it only needs to uh, take half an hour in an urban area. So these network adequacy standards are a very important change, and the plan must do an analysis every year. They must have an independent, what's called an uh, EQRO, external quality uh, review organization, certify that the managed care is meeting the network adequacy standards. And the state then has to annually certify to CMS that they've met them. So uh, it's upping the bar significantly. Uh, a plan must have in their network federally qualified health centers, rural health clinics, um, nurse midwives, uh, and uh, certified nurse practitioners. That said, it doesn't, unlike fee-for-service, it doesn't have to accept every FQHC. It has to assure that there is at least one FQHC available in the service area. So um, it, you know, we kind of tried to push the idea with them that they would use the terms that we've gotten used to for the marketplace, like essential community provider is the term used there. And essential community provider also includes Ryan White um, uh, providers. Uh, the Medicaid standard, though, does not and they do not use that terminology. Um, so just to um, let you know about the standards for network adequacy. Um, so the, um, there are also a number of requirements which should be helpful in terms of um, the information that enrollees should get when they choose a plan. There's been a lot of concern that the enrollees are getting um, inaccurate information. They join because their provider's there, and then suddenly their provider's not there. So they really up the requirements um, in terms of uh, 
the provider descriptions have to be up to date and uh, they have to include provider qualifications related to cultural, linguistic, and accessibility. Um, which, and one of the ones I really liked the most because I came from behavioral health, I came from SAMHSA before I joined HRSA recently, is uh, the provider manual has to, that the state has accessible and the plans has to state whether the provider is accepting patients. Uh, I remember times when uh, the, when I worked at a uh, outpatient mental health facility where sure that that provider's on the uh, provider directory but he has five slots for Medicaid and if they're all full you can't get in even though he's on your network. So this is to provide information that really tells you who's available on the network. Um, it also um, must provide up-to-date information about the formularies. And the state website must explain if there are certain requirements around tiering or fail first, any of those kind of utilization controls uh, are to be very transparent and listed on uh, the website for uh, both the state website and the Medicaid plan, managed care plan website. Um, so it, I also want to let you know that it had very broad uh, provisions that managed care plans cannot discriminate against patients or providers based upon race, national origin, sex, sexual orientation and gender identity um, and disability. And it was really the first time I'd seen the, the sexual orientation and gender um, identity as a requirement for managed care. Um, it also, I think, had some nice protections for providers. So um, you can't, um, it prohibited any discrimination against a provider because they dealt with high-cost populations or uh, they were, uh, had, had, were involved in high-cost uh, services. That's what they provided. So I think it was very nice to have that explicitly included. Um, so the, there are also a lot more... Um, requirements around uh, how to help the beneficiary select a plan and to um, know how to use those services. So uh, they created something new called a beneficiary services um, support service. And that means that all Medicaid enrollees get a choice counselor. I mean, in a way, this is mimicking things we've already seen rolled out under the marketplace plans. That Medicaid may have had enrollment brokers, but they typically were limited to just enrollment. The new choice counselors are also supposed to assist you post-enrollment with using your services. Um, 
and if you're involved in long-term services and supports, with helping you file a grievance or anything you need to do there. So it's really upping the bar in terms of um, uh, helping the enrollee utilize the Medicaid services. Um, they also have a requirement for transitional plans. So if you've been in Medicaid fee-for-service and you go into managed care, uh, there's supposed to be a transitional plan that will allow you to uh, retain your existing provider for some period of time to be sure that um, uh, necessary treatment is set up and um, um, so it, it really does provide um, a number of protections that weren't there before. I would say, though, we were a little disappointed by the oral translation standards. It does require uh, that, that the plan provide oral translation services and documents in the prevalent languages, and that was as specific as it got. In the marketplace, we know they have to provide uh, all plan documents and uh, uh, assistive devices with providers for the top 15 languages, but they did not choose to do that. Um, they also had some requirements that they added uh, to be sure and make rate setting a little more transparent so that there can be public comment on how they set their rates. Um, there are also, they shifted some of the certification of providers. It used to be all of that was done by the managed care uh, entity. And as a provider, you could sometimes have to do it three or four times for every plan, you know, you wanted to participate in. Uh, but this allows that the state has to do the overall enrollment of providers in managed care just like they already do for fee-for-service. Why should you have to do it twice, right? Um, so that should simplify things. Um, they also tried to align these new managed care requirements with other payers. So, for instance, uh, there's something called a medical loss ratio. Well, that means if you take the total premium payment, what percent of that do you have to spend on services? And in the marketplace, for large plans, it's 85 percent. For small plans, 80 percent. Um, this says that the plan must report that medical loss ratio to the state. The state doesn't have to set a standard, but if they do set a standard, it has to be 85% or better. So it's a funny kind of thing. They were clearly trying to get that in there, but they didn't say that the state had to put in their contracts that uh, it's a standard. Um, maybe that'll be done later. Um, the managed care rules also aligned a lot of the CHIP with Medicaid. That's probably not your primary interest, so I'll skip over that. 
Um, there were also requirements uh, that you couldn't, uh, about access to family planning services. Um, there were new definitions, too, about authorizing services. And uh, this was an area where Medicaid did have specific um, standards that they put in place. So a managed care plan has to um, uh, provide, provide an action on a service authorization request within two weeks. If it is an urgent matter, they have to provide it within an authorization of services within 72 hours. And for medications, they have to provide a response within 24 hours. Um, and if there is uh, some difficulty, like you're trying to reauthorize uh, medications that the person has been on, it requires that you provide a 72-hour emergency supply. So it really uh, increases uh, the bar for how responsive a plan has to be to service authorizations. It also um, raises the bar in terms of grievances and appeals and says that if you've filed a grievance because your medicine wasn't authorized and you think it ought to be, uh, then they have to continue that medication until they make a determination. Um, they've also kind of cut out a level. They said, you know, managed care used to have two or three appeals and you take a lot of time. Now managed care gets one appeal and then it goes to fair hearing, which is a, a federal judicial process. So, Again, we really see the, the whole grievance and appeal process as, as having greater protections. Um, so there were also a few other things to align uh, Medicaid managed care with uh, other commercial and Medicare plans. Um, 340B. Um, uh, drugs actually under eight, uh, the Accountable Care Act authorized that 340B could uh, apply to people enrolled in Medicaid managed care. You know, that's very important because 340, I mean, the, the uh, increasingly, something I should have mentioned, the Medicaid managed care is now almost 75% of all enrollees. So uh, it's, it's grown hugely from the, the 90s when it was only about 10%. But anyway, getting back to 340B, uh, they said, you know, 340B discounts can be given to providers um, when the enrollee is in a managed care program. Uh, it had been previously restricted to fee-for-service. Um, but the one thing it said is we can't have duplicate discounts. So you can't, you know, uh, in essence, under 340B, the provider can obtain those drugs at a discount. Um, but 
the state also kind of has, they have something called a Medicaid drug rebate program where they can get drugs discounted. And so uh, it's, they don't want to, you know, uh, pharmacies shouldn't have to give two discounts, right? So when it opened up to managed care, it said, but you have to have a program in place to prevent duplicate discounts. Um, at least one state has come back to, has put in a request to CMS to say, well, let's carve out all, you know, carve out all uh, Medicaid enrollees from 340B discounts, which given that many of the entities that are serving the safety net um, have a lot of Medicaid enrollees. So um, it's something of a, uh, something that we're involved in now, and there are a number of organizations also talking to CMS to try to um, deal with that. But just to let you know, um, this expressly, again, allow, uh, uh, implemented the 340B uh, drug discounts for Medicaid enrollees in managed care. Um, all right. Thank you. I'm doing all right. Okay, so um, I'm doing all right on time. Um, so let me turn real quickly to uh, the Medicaid managed care uh, regulations uh, relating to mental health parity. Uh, it's actually MAPIA, Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, uh, which actually became um, a law in 2008. And it had interim rules implementing it into um, commercial plans in, by 2010, but as I said, the rules as to how it affects um, Medicaid did not come out until this mar last mar March 2016. So um, I will say that there is concern that in the commercial plans that there is still some lack of parity. Uh, so the president has created a task force on the parity issue to try to uh, see what the federal government can do to uh, help encourage parity. So what is, real quickly, uh, the Mental Health and Addiction Equity Act says that if large employers cover mental health and substance abuse, then they have to cover it in the same way that they cover medical surgical things. They can't have more limits, like, oh, you only get 10 days, whereas you can stay a month in the hospital. You can't have greater cost sharing. And you can't do more utilization review of those services than you do in medical surgical. But I would note that the act as it passed said if, if you provide mental health and substance abuse, you have to meet these standards as a large employer. I thought it was terribly ironic that one of the first groups to drop their mental health and substance abuse coverage was the Screen Actors Guild. 
Now, there are some folks that don't need mental health and substance use disorder treatment. But they did, they, so they dropped it so they didn't have to meet it. Um, but let's look at how the Affordable Care Act, as we know, passed in 2010. And um, it, MAPIA was really strengthened through the fact that we know that the marketplace and Medicaid expansion have to cover um, essential health benefits. Well, one of those essential health benefits is mental health and substance abuse at MAPIA parity. So um, it took a law that was really only affecting large employers and now said the marketplace, which predominantly has smaller uh, serves individuals buying or it serves small employers, now they have to meet it. And under Medicaid, the Medicaid expansion people now have to meet it. So it, it really, like some people said, it took MAPIA and put it on steroids, you know. And um, so let me just touch real quickly on some of the rules. Um, the rules actually broadened out guidance uh, sub-regulatory guidance they had before. It now says if a Medicaid enrollee is covered by any managed care, then all of their services have to meet parity, even if part of them say their drug program is fee-for-service over here. That still has to meet parity. So um, given that, as I said, three-quarters are now in um, managed care under Medicaid, it really broadened it significantly. Um, it has much the same kind of standards. Um, it doesn't allow uh, uh, more limits in days. Many states had, especially in substance abuse, had very limited benefits. You know, they'd give you detox for 10 days a year, and then you were done. Now you have to provide the continuum. And uh, most, that's what most Medicaid enrollees would get. Um, it effectively prohibits fail-first drug policies um, because, the, because there isn't a similar fail-first uh, on most uh, uh, on most of the rules around medical surgical drugs. And um, it requires the state to assure that its managed care and other services are meeting parity by doing uh, a regular parity analysis. So that's my stick on these two regs. Are there any burning questions before I turn it over to Carrie? Sure. You had referenced that MAPIA had previously only uh, really applied to sort of larger employers mm -hmm. nationally, um, but I also thought it was sort of widely disregarded, and there was you know lawsuits in a dozen states, and I think a couple of them have settled, but like it, it didn't have teeth. This rule just came out; it's not effective yet. Are we expecting to see the same thing happen, that we're going to have to wait for lawsuits to, to push enforcement, or do you expect mm -hmm. there to be broad enforcement on the state level? Well, that's a very good question. Um, 
I think, um, I frankly think the commercial plans, uh, it was easier to kind of play fully, but because most people uh, don't read their benefits that well. It's, you know, way back. Um, and I really, you know, I know a number of folks in the uh, mental health and substance abuse advocate groups who will really get in your face a lot more. And uh, I think they'll hopefully uh, get uh, Medicaid up to speed on this faster. There have been other things that they've been doing, actually. They had they have this Innovator Accelerator Program, IAP, and they've had one around substance abuse. They've come out with a raft of uh, informational bulletins encouraging states. Uh, oh, one thing I didn't mention, since you're interested in mental health and substance abuse, one thing that's in the managed care regs allows you to waive the restriction against paying for institu institutions of mental disease, the IMD. Uh, and I'll just take two minutes on explaining that. When Congress passed Medicaid in 1965, we had huge state hospitals. We had hospitals with 10,000 patients in them. And Congress was very sure that they did not want to pay for that. So they put into Medicaid that Medicaid payment can't go to institutions of mental disease or the IMD exclusion. Um, and that has largely, and that's created some interesting ways to get around that. Uh, but um, anyway, this managed care rule says that um, Medicaid plans can receive capitation payments, i.e. pay for a client's services for up to 15 days in an IMD. Um, so it, it's kind of a, you know, a crack in the door uh, to, uh, and, and, and there's always legislation in Congress to do away with the IMD, but we know how many bills we seem to get out right, in, uh, right now, and that's never been at the top of it. But that is a positive sign. Good question. Uh, Jeff Dockery with uh, Southeast Hesters in Georgia. We have uh, a lot of immigrants in our part of the state, and some are not here um, totally on work visas. But we have uh, run up into something lately with um, a, a lady who is here and actually has a um, permit to be here, but she signed some form that, that gives her the right to stay, but she now is pregnant and is being denied by Medicaid care because she cannot receive services because she signed this form to keep her permit to stay in the country. It wow. may not be germane to this, but I'm not sure, so if it's not, it's fine. But Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, um, Medicaid doesn't even cover, for, for most uh, legally residing um, non-residents, there's a five-year waiting period under Medicaid. Now, ACA just allowed that pregnant women and children, uh, the state could opt 
to include them and not make them wait. But um, I'm wondering, something about what you're saying is making me think that it might be, was she from one of the territories? Because, uh, no? Well, that's an interesting one. You can, uh, I've not heard of it. Um, You know, it's interesting. California is right now preparing, has prepared a waiver uh, to cover uh, not lawfully residing immigrants, uh, which under a special authority in the Affordable Care Act called state waivers. And it, you know, I mean, it would be wonderful, but I don't... uh, there's a lot of questions about it. Um, I mean, when the Affordable Care Act specifically says we don't cover undocumented persons, then it's a it's a problem. But it, you know, it's ridiculous. So, but that's just me. Uh, that's my personal opinion. I'm not expressing the government uh, in any way here. Um, well, if there aren't any questions, I'll let Carrie take over and talk about MIPS and take off this ridiculous thing here. Well, I guess I'll leave it on. I'll turn it off. All right, thank you, Rita. So I'm Carrie Cornejo. I'm a colleague of Rita's in HRSA's Office of Planning Analysis and Evaluation. And we wanted to spend the remaining portion of the presentation today covering some new changes that are coming um, to Medicare payment for clinicians. We felt this would be important to cover considering the increasing importance that Medicare will play as more um, people living with HIV become eligible for Medicare. So what I'm going to talk about specifically is the quality payment program proposed rule. It's a uh, CMS's proposal to change clinician pa- or make some changes to clinician payment um, fee for service uh, Medicare. That's where that applies. And this was called for under the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act of 2015. It goes by MACRA for short because we have to use an acronym for everything. So <laughs> it's MACRA. And here are some of the broad implementation goals of MACRA that CMS has. Um, This is part of the push that I'm sure you've heard about um, to move towards payment for value instead of payment for volume. And this is within primarily fee-for-service Medicare. Um, So with implementing um, the quality payment program as part of MACRA, CMS hopes to offer multiple pathways for providers to tie their payments. Um, to value, they also provide incentives for providers to participate in what they call alternative payment models, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, they also seek to minimize additional reporting burden in a couple of ways, uh, mainly by streamlining multiple programs that are already out there in Medicare and by streamlining quality measures and quality initiatives across payers. So here are just some of the basics of the quality payment program. CMS put out their proposal and their proposed rule in April of this year. Um, The final rule is not expected until sometime in the fall of 2016. So I want to stress to you that the updates we're talking about today are only proposed. They haven't been finalized yet, and some changes could be made in the final rule. Um, But basically, this rule takes payment into two different directions um, for clinician payment. There's the merit-based incentive payment system called MIPS. 
Uh, that's slated for implementation in 2017, though there's some talk that that could be delayed. Um, the CMS administrator actually um, said in front of Congress that it might be delayed. So whether or not that gets delayed should appear in the final rule. The other portion of the rule uh, focuses on these advanced alternative payment models and the incentives that CMS is providing there. So we don't have polling capabilities today, but I just kind of wanted to get a sense in the room of how much or familiarity you have with these different Medicare payment programs and quality programs. Um, so maybe just a show of hands if you know about these programs and you participate, them, participate in them currently. Okay, that's helpful. And um, do you not know about them at all, or maybe you don't participate? Okay, that, that's good to know. So that'll kind of um, gauge where I go with the presentation. Um, so basically, MIPS is a new program for clinician payment under Medicare. Um, they're going to make payment adjustments um, based on uh, clinician performance in these four categories. And three of the categories are actually based on existing programs. Uh, that CMS already has in place. Um, you might have heard of the physician quality reporting system, there's the value-based modifier, and then there's the Medicare EHR incentive program are all rolled up into this one program. It also adds a new fourth component called clinical practice improvement activities, and performance on that will be gauged basically participation in certain activities. For instance, um, clinicians will get full credit for participation in um, patient-centered medical homes. So who does this apply to? This uh, applies to physicians, PAs, MPs, clinical nurse specialists, and certified registered nurse anesthetists um, in the first two years of the program. And these are clinicians that are participating in Medicare Part B. Um, in future years, in year three and beyond, CMS might expand um, the population to this group of um, clinicians in the second category. And so this applies to only clinician payment. This doesn't apply to the facility portion of the payment at all. It doesn't apply to payments to um, federally qualified health centers. It doesn't apply to payments to hospitals. It's just clinicians. Um, it also doesn't apply to certain clinicians. Uh, it doesn't apply to the clinicians who are in their first year of participating in Medicare Part B. It doesn't apply to um, clinicians who don't meet this low patient volume threshold, which is listed out here on the slide. Um, there's been significant feedback um, and concern from the public about this threshold. Um, so it could change in the final rule. Um, so that's something to look out for. And it also um, doesn't apply to certain participants in these advanced alternative payment models. Um, I just want to note, too, there's a proposal in the proposed rule to allow federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics to voluntarily um, report their data to the MIPS system. Uh, to get them kind of more used to this reporting, um, these reporting aspects that are becoming increasingly important in the Medicare system, uh, but the payment adjustments wouldn't apply at all. So here are the performance categories here. This is the breakdown of how much each of the four different categories counts towards your score. Um, there are different ways of reporting uh, in these systems depending on the category. It could be through your EHR, through registries. Um, there are also some HIV-specific measures that are included, and there are ones that are, you may already be reporting on if you're participating in these programs. Actually, um, a few of these measures are used by the Ryan White program, so you might be already reporting on that for your participation in the Ryan White program. 
Oh, and I also wanted to talk about the payment adjustments too, just before I move on. Um, in 2019, payments will be adjusted um, plus or minus 4%, and that increases until we get to 2022 20, and beyond, and payments will be adjusted um, plus or minus 9%. And so uh, focusing back on this quality aspect um, before we move on, and I think this is a good bridge between um, the alternative payment models and uh, the MIPS program because it applies to both, really. Um, but the quality measurement de development plan, that's something that CMS is going to be putting out every year that basically outlines their plans for the use of quality measures uh, each year in the MIPS system, and uh, that's required by MACRA also. Um, and HRSA and the Ryan White program did provide a supporting role in putting this together. And they're also, uh, they have a call for measures every year, and they also ask for feedback from the public on the measures. Another initiative from CMS that's related to this is the Core Quality Measures Collaborative, and it founded in 2014, and the goal of this is to align measures across payers to get uh, different public uh, payers like Medicare, Medicaid, um, and the private insurance plans to agree on a core set of measures. Earlier this year, they released um, the seven sets that they've uh, agreed upon so far, and one of them focuses exclusively on HIV and hepatitis C, and two of the eight measures in the set actually come from the Ryan White program. I'm going to skip this. So now I'm going to talk about the alternative payment models. You may have heard a lot of talk about these new innovative um, payment models that, CM that are coming out of CMS, like accountable care organizations, um, models coming out of the Innovation Center, just new ways of paying for payment to try to get towards that payment for value. And so this is another component of the program. So if you are in an advanced alternative payment model, then you are not subject to the MIPS payment adjustments. And you get that by having a certain amount of your patients or payments um, going through advanced APMs. You also receive a 5% lump sum bonus on your payment. So here are the list of what qualifies currently as an advanced APM. So CMS says that not all um, APMs count as advanced APMs, and really the difference is you have to bear risk. Um, so they want you bearing financial risk. Um, these also have, to be considered an advanced APM, uh, the model also has to require the use of certified EHR technology in addition to um, measures that are similar to those used in the MIPS program. And here's the timeline for implementation that could change, um, but I just wanted to show it to you in this format so you can get a sense of what's proposed currently. So now we kind of wanted to pull it all together. I kind of went through that quickly, so we'll leave a lot of time for questions. Um, and there are certainly many more details on the Medicare um, side that we could go through too. Um, so here are some questions following up from the Medicaid uh, portion of the presentation, and um, I don't know if, Rita, you want to go through them or if I can just kind of give an overview of them. Well, um, given that we don't have too much more time, I think we should maybe first ask if there are any hot questions on your quality stuff uh, that people have. Um, do you know, I, I guess probably the answer to this is obvious, but you mentioned FQHCs are exempt, mm -hmm. but not Ryan White funded. 
organizations for macro. So is there any opportunity there related to getting an exemption based on similar how FQHCs are exempted? Well, so FQHCs are exempt. That's a good question. And they're exempt because of the unique way that they're paid. So they're not, for the most part, the providers in FQHC aren't paid through that physician fee schedule under Medicare. So that's the reason why they're exempt and why rural health clinics are exempt. Um, there's all... Yeah, I mean, so while really it is different, but Ryan White-funded entities also have very unique payment structures, you know, so that, I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, I mean, no, there's nothing we can do about it, but just pointing out that it's it's very limiting for, yeah. for that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And there are exemptions, too, with that low volume threshold, depending on how many. Well, um, the Medicare. other thing is, is are, are you billing for primary care or specialist care? Both. Because the specialist care is still kind of exempt from the system. Uh, it's a primary care that's they're trying to pull in. Other questions? exactly know that question though Tracy I don't she's shaking her head back there but she's the quality expert I'm not and it's a small set of measures too I believe there are only eight in And there's separate measures, too. The HIV measures, I think there's six on HIV, if I remember correctly, and then two that are devoted to hepatitis C. So there's not overlap um, between the measures either. So are there any questions about anything we've talked about today or comments, uh, suggestions? C Carrie and I do get the sometimes unenviable task of reading through all these regulations when they're proposed. And um, so if you all have something to tell us that we should know about about some of these things i'd be interested we'd be interested mm -hmm. oh i can see i can go back and say they had no yeah. suggestions for us we're doing a great job <laughs> okay Just to, you know, because if you're like us, most of our patients are under 64 on SSDI, mm -hmm. high levels of, you know, needs. And so how are we going to be compared? Where, where's our comparator, you know, in terms of making the, the MIPS? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and what, what, how is that going to work? Yeah. Okay. That's a good, good one. Yeah, that's... Uh, just in, in terms of mental health parity, um, it's about a thousand to one ratio right now. So to even talk about mental health parity, there would be a drastic change in funding, which I don't think anyone sees that sort of really happening. But if there's even modest um, efforts towards uh, more funding for behavioral services, that, that could make a lot of uh, a lot of differences, particularly as we're looking for um, you know increasing value and so forth. So um, I, I I I think it's fantastic that there's. Um, the continued rhetoric of parity, mm -hmm. but the difference between the reality on the ground and, and what's being proposed is so vast that, Absolutely. I, that I, I'm not sure that the people involved even understand the number of zeros behind the change. Yeah, I, well, I think that's why really, though, the president um, 
uh, implemented a new parity commission that had all of the federal agencies. Uh, they've tried to deal with some, I mean, if you're talking about substance abuse too, there's a lot of related issues. They've been trying to deal with, for instance, how to get people released from prison onto uh, coverage quickly. You know, can, you know, let's get them authorized while they're in prison so the minute they come out, they don't lapse in their drugs for a month or two while they're getting acted upon. So uh, there's workforce issues um, that are huge. I mean, I used to work for SAMHSA for 15 years, so I could, I could tell you a bunch, but um, you're absolutely right. Um, but I really, I, I have to say, since the Affordable Care Act, behavioral health, nobody's questioning that we need more of it in a way that they used to. It used to be like, oh, just go over there in your silo, you know. But I really, people are finally getting, you can't have healthy people, uh, you know, medically, unless you also deal with their mental health and substance abuse issues. So um, I think it's better, but of course, uh, but it is a slow slog sometimes. So, well, I think we've reached the end of probably oh, your patience. One Wait, one more. I have a question. I really like your first question about the providers. Um, how can they be part of the, the whole entire network being developed because of our new Medicaid managed care regulations on the table today that should be implemented, you know, partially? Mm -hmm. But, but um, I wanted to know, though, from the group of the providers in this room, how many of you, though, are at the table when um, managed care performance matrix are being developed in your states? In, in, in your states, um, because in the beginning, I think the first speaker talked about external quality review, and you know that many external quality review organizations must be doing PIPs, and. Um, and I want to encourage the providers in the room, if the EQROs are doing um, PIPs and you are part of their network, would it be great if they conclude, um, let's say HIV, let's say uh, viral, viral suppression or something in mm -hmm. their PIPs? And, I, and, I, and I, we have not been able to see that among the HIV community of providers. So wouldn't it be great though, if you really take a, you leave this conference and you, you take a big, um, active role in what's really brought to the table for the, the PIPs. And, um, and also too, there's something else that I didn't hear you mention. Um, we are focusing on quality, health outcomes, and everything you talked about today, all of the new regulations coming out, coming out it's all tied into health outcomes. And, uh, and of course, making sure providers are incenti incentivized to do, to do their work. So um, I mean, as someone sitting here listening to what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing, I will hope the providers here gathered today will try to figure out in their organizations who make these, who, who's at the table negotiating on behalf and making sure that HIV is being mentioned in your quality strategies, it's in the Medicaid regulations, and also too, they're making sure that quality strategies also lead us to do EQRs. So please make sure you're at the table bringing all of these things to the front line for our people living with HIV needs today. I, on that, I will applaud and say thank you. I agree. And, and let you guys go. Thank you. Yep.